Okay, welcome everyone. Is it, did you have a nice little break? Get to stretch a little bit? I encourage you all in these breaks to go outside and stretch a little bit. It's actually um, scientifically proven that if you sit for over, I think it's over 45 minutes or an hour straight without any exercise and then continue on to sit for like, you know, two hours or whatever, that it takes like 15 seconds off your life or something like that. It's, uh, <laughs> so get up and, and move around um, between breaks. I'll just give another little inch. Well, first of all, was there, is that, there a question? Did you have a question? Oh, okay. All right. Okay, to begin, I'm going to go ahead and give a little introduction as well. I know that many of you all weren't here when we started the last session. Um, my name is Paul Dysinger, and I invited my dad, Edwin Dysinger, to come and to do this seminar with me. I love working with my dad, and I have the privilege of living right next door to my dad and my mom. We live in Tennessee on Bountiful Blessings Farm. My dad and um, my uncle John uh, were partners in uh, Bountiful Blessings Farm where they grow a huge variety of vegetables, herbs, and berries. And I actually worked with the commercial family farm for many years. And then in 2013 started my own business, uh, Born to Grow. Just curious, how many of you are on the, uh, the Born to Grow email list? All right. Yeah, we've got a few. We've got a few in here. All right. So if you're not, then you should get on our, on our email list. We send out free garden training and information, as well as we have some paid gardening courses and uh, membership. And we can share with you more about that in a little bit. Or if you're listening uh, to this later, you can go to borntogrow.net. That is our website. Um, but this is exciting. We're talking about Gardening 101 and giving you the practical steps to jumpstart you in your garden as if you were starting from scratch and really giving you tools and tips from our experience in growing because we've, we've been growing for many years and we want you to learn from our mistakes so that you can get there faster, um, get to your goal of growing your own food that is healthy, that's vibrant, that doesn't take all of your time and um, so you can do it in a way that it has a lot less stress, less work, but grow more and better quality produce with less pests and diseases. The, today's, uh, well, this session this morning uh, is the second one, and what's called soil and soil improvement. Soil is really the foundation of your garden. It's one of the foundational pillars. If you think about it, this is where your plant is actually living and drawing its nutrients, or a lot of its nutrients, from, is from in the soil. And so the, the, for, the um, quality of your soil is really important for the quality of your garden. And we'll be sharing with you more about that um, in just a second. But I'm going to turn it over to Dad real quick to talk a little bit about some of the spiritual connections between the soil and the garden in our lives. Let's just pray again. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you that we get to study and learn about the garden and the things that you intend to teach us from it. We pray that you would bless now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so what was man made out of when God made man? Soil. 
Dirt, yes. Okay, and so that's, that's what we originated from. And when we die, what happens? We go back to it, yes. And, and in between, what happens? Yes, we live our whole life on soil, right? There, there, are, there are some people that, that don't. I, there's a, there are some people that, that live to the, um, between the Philippines and, and Vietnam. They, they just live in boats on the water. So there, there are a few people that don't, but most, I mean, we're, as people, we were made to, to live on the soil. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, some people live surrounded by concrete. Yes. Well. And um, so anyways, there, there's something very special about our connection to the soil. You know, we, we tend to, um, if, you, if you have had the blessing and the opportunity of living in one place for some time, I think chances are very good that, that you, you have an affection for that place. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just something as, as individuals we, we develop a, an affection for our particular place, but we do that as, as groups of people. You know, we talk about our homeland. You know, we have, you've, you've heard of people that, that traveled overseas and when they got back they wanted to kiss the soil because they were, they were home again. <laughs> so there, there's something very special about, about place, and place is connected to soil. <clears throat> and one, one, of the, one of the special things about place is that it, it determines who your neighbors are. It determines your relationships. And it gets back to this idea of niche that we talked about earlier. But... Um, you know, where, where you choose to live, it not only determines who your, who your friends and are and, and the places that you do business with, it also determines the, the kind of natural environment you live in, what, what plant species are, you know, grow well in your area, what kind of animals live in your area, what kind of bugs live in your area. It, it, it determines a lot of things, your choice of where you're going to live. Um, and it's, it's through these relationships with, with people, with businesses, with, with the natural environment around us, the plants and the animals, it's through all of those relationships that we get our life. Right? Just think about it. <laughs> um, and, and the way God created us, you know, the, for, and for many, many years, this was true on the earth, that we, we actually obtained our life, our physical life, from a particular piece of land. Right now, we, we don't so much. It comes from land scattered all over the world. <laughs> but um, I, we, we got to go to the, the, um, the space center a few years ago, and, and in one of the displays, there was a little video playing, and, and it showed one of the astronauts eating a burrito, you know, up in the space station. And it just hit me. That thing that he's eating 
was grown in some farmer's field on this earth. Okay? You know, our, our life is connected to the, to the earth. <clears throat> so, um, when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a particular place, right? The Garden of Eden. He, he, gave, he made them to be, um, have dominion over the whole earth, but he wasn't expecting that of them by themselves. He gave them a particular place on the earth that was theirs to manage. And then the ideal was that, was that their children would manage another place and their children would manage other places and eventually the whole earth would be, would be managed by, by Adam and his descendants. Each managing a particular part of it. Um, so the land and, and soil is at the heart of our existence. Our relationships and our life come from it, and we go back to it. Now, also in the Bible, it makes a special connection between our soil, the soil, and our hearts. Right? Can you think of any verses that, that make that connection? When the, when the sower went out to sow... The, the soil represented hearts, right? And um, in Jeremiah 4, 3, and 4, God says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your hearts. It's making a connection between soil and our hearts. And in Hosea 10, 12, it says, Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. So again, and, and these are just a couple of examples, but there, this, this is a theme all through scripture. The, the soil or the land is representing our hearts. And um, so I, I, I firmly believe that God created the physical world that we see or that we experience with our senses that, that you're working with when you work in the garden. God created that world to teach us lessons about the spiritual world that we cannot see and, and the, the realm of, of our hearts that we cannot see. So I want you to understand that. That's, that's, to me, that's a very significant thing. And I did not really believe that until I started working in my garden. And then I started seeing all the connections, and you know, I'm, I'm certain that it has to be that way. Um, so, uh, well, another place, you, just read the first chapter of Christ Object Lessons. She makes it very clear there. Um, so, God makes a connection between the state of the heart and the state of the land. In other words, our, our land, our garden, mirrors our hearts. And um, God, God had a purpose in doing that. So, for example, when Adam and Eve fell, what happened? The, the land was cursed, yes. 
because of what they had done. So, so the state of the land was a mirror. It was a reflection of their hearts. And um, when, at the time of the flood, what happened? Yeah, because God, God cursed the land because the, the land was a reflection of, of the people's hearts. There is a connection there. And the time of Elijah, the same thing happened. Um, so many times in Scripture, when people left God and his ways, he cursed the land and or took it away from them. And, and then when they, when they did things right, God blessed the land. There was a blessing on the land. If you read the, in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses on Israel, it starts out with the land, <laughs> and then your home and your family and, and everything else. So the, the soil, the land, is a reflection or a mirror of our hearts. And I want you to keep that in mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, <clears throat> one thing that really stuck out to me that the Lord really called to my heart <clears throat> one time was I was walking up to the house and thinking about the land. And in Jeremiah, it says, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. And if you connect that with the sower that went out to sow the seed, the seed was what? The word of God. And... Um, it's a call to my heart, and it's a call to each one of our hearts. You know, even every day when we open the word of God in the morning, Lord, is there anything in my heart that needs to be broken up? Because when you look out and you see this grass, if you sow the seed into the grass, the seed isn't going to sprout, most likely. Or if it does, it will get choked out very quickly. But if that ground is prepared and fresh, without a weed, the seed will take root immediately and it's the same way in our hearts every single morning we have that opportunity to come to the lord and say father is there anything in my heart that needs to be taken out a weed is my soil ready to receive your word before i open your word this morning and read read your word all right so just going to turn on the projector here and we're talking about soil and uh, soil improvement in the last, last session, we talked about, we mentioned how any soil is redeemable. Any soil is improvable. If you think about it, um, many of us have in our minds uh, an idea of an ideal soil. You know, it's that dark, rich, crumbly, it's almost like a chocolate cake texture. You know, it just crumbles in your hands. Um, how many of us actually have that soil? Is there anyone here? There, yes, fantastic. There are places, I mean, people talk about, I think in Idaho, is it? Just the, the rich, Iowa. Iowa, the rich, dark, you know, soil that is just amazing. And there's places that have that. Unfortunately, most of us don't have that. It, but we have the opportunity to work towards it. And there are things that we can do to improve our soil. We may, may never get to the place where it is that perfect ideal, 
but we can get a lot closer than we were. And like we were telling you in the last session about our friend Elliot Coleman that changed his soil from some of the worst that he'd ever seen in his life, and he's been farming for 40 years, to uh, an amazing rich soil that grows a bounty of produce. We've been up to his farm. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. So soil and soil improvement. I don't know if you're going to be able to really see the slides that well because of the, the sunshine. I don't think there's anything we can really do about that. I don't know if we can move it into the shade more. Um, great. Okay, so first question. How many of you can tell me what soil is made out of? Minerals, okay, that's one thing. Minerals, what else? Okay, minus the, minus the actual uh, chemical makeup, uh, just the main things. So you have minerals, air, water, clay, sand, organic matter. All right, so <clears throat> most of us, when we think of soil, we think of it as the rock particles, right? You've got all of these, these minerals and rock particles that are, are together. Um, I, who said air and water? Fantastic. That's an that's excellent observation because most people don't think about the air and the water that make up a good soil. Um, here's a pie chart um, showing you a good soil composition. And you may be surprised, but a good soil composition is actually 25% water and 25% air. So half of your soil should be water and air um, in your garden. Then you're going to have about 45% minerals, 5 to 10% organic matter, and that can vary. Um, but that is kind of your ideal soil. Now, when you get into a sandy soil, like here in Florida, it's going to have a lot more of this air because there's a lot more um, pockets. The, the, the particles are, are larger, and the larger the particle is, the more air there is around it between them. Does that make sense? Um, a clay soil, on the other hand, is going to have the exact opposite effect. You're going to have a lot more compaction and less air and less ability for water to come through. You want a balance between them. Um, soil particles can be divided into three main sizes. You have sand, silt, and clay. And just for fun, we're going to talk just a little bit about the differences between sand, silt, and clay. Uh, sand makes, is what makes up the largest particles in the soil. It doesn't hold water very well. Um, as you know, if you played in a sandbox, the water just, you know, it sinks through it. If you live in Florida here, you know that it doesn't hold water very well. Um, leaves lots of air and almost no capillary water. Capillary water is when you put, say, a t-shirt in water and the water starts cr crawling up the t-shirt. You know what I'm talking about? You want your soil to be able to do the same thing so that it can bring up water from down below as well as water from above. You know, we think about watering from above, but if your soil has a good structure, it will actually draw water from below as well using capillary action. So you want that. Unfortunately, sand doesn't have a lot of capillary water, and it quickly settles in water. It's gritty when rubbed between your fingers, and you can see it with your naked eye, right? You can go to the beach. You can see the individual sand particles. Silt, on the other hand, is enough smaller than sand that you need an optical microscope to actually see the individual particles. Um, 
Silt holds water, especially capillary water, much better than sand. So water will move through it um, using capillary action. And that capillary action um, needs a certain, a certain size, uh, and silt is, is just perfect for, for doing that, um, for the water to be drawn in between it. Um, silt is enough smaller and it gets cut off, but it feels more like flour when you're, when you're feeling it. Yeah, more like, more like flour or like a coarse, coarse flour. And the last one is clay. Now, clay particles are the smallest in soil, and you actually need an electron microscope to view an individual clay particle. That is extremely, extremely small. It's just very small. Um, clay holds lots of water, and is slippery when handled because the particles are so small. But also because it's uh, holding all that water and they're so small, there's not much air that gets down in there. And your plants need air as well to be able to grow. They need, remember, you want that 25% air, 25% water. So you want a mixture. Now, we'll talk, we'll be, we'll be, I'll, I'll be sharing with you a little bit more about how you can improve your soil if you have a clay soil or a sandy soil. Um, but we're just talking about the, the different particle sizes. And just for fun, let's compare the sizes of um, the different sizes of, of particles. If clay was the size of a beet seed, a beet seed is about that small. Um, if you've ever planted beets, then you know how big a beet seed is. Then silt would be about the size of a beet. And who can guess how big sand would be? It would be bigger. Sand would be the size of a wheelbarrow in compared with the beet seed. So you can tell there's a large difference. You're dealing with a lot of different um, particles. Another thing is a teaspoon of sand spread one particle deep would cover about the space of a silver dollar, whereas clay would cover an entire tennis court or more. Just a teaspoon of clay, one particle deep would cover an entire. So that's just to give you a little visual, just so you can grasp hold of the different, um, what you're dealing with in, in your soil. Now, before we talk about improving it, very briefly, these rock particles um, are formed as sun, snow, rain, wind, freezing, and thawing all, all adds to the slow breakdown of rocks into smaller particle sizes and minerals um, that come, that you know, surround us in the world. Rocks grinding against each other, rolling down riverbeds, avalanches down mountains add to the process, and then that soil gets washed down into the lower areas. There's chemical processes from uh, environmental and biological sources that also break down rocks and minerals. Uh, for instance, mosses and lichens will produce acids that break down rocks into smaller pieces as well. It's just some interesting facts. The other thing is, so you have all of these rock particles, but then the other thing is that you have organic matter as well in a healthy soil. In order to support life, the soil must include more than just minerals. Um, organic matter is formed when any living thing dies and decays. You're going to hear us talk a lot about organic matter because it is extremely important for the health of your garden, and it plays a huge role in building up your soil. So when any living thing dies, so tree leaves, you know, grass clippings, 
Um, anything that was once alive that has died and decayed, uh, decaying or decayed, is organic matter. The, Food scraps, exactly. So your compost pile is just a huge source of organic matter. Yep. The end product, once the organic matter is decayed down to its end product, it, is a, it becomes a rich dark brown soil material called humus. Humus. And that is the ideal to add into your garden, is that end product of humus. Um, Humus electrically attracts mineral particles, so it, it holds those mineral particles and nutrients in your soil. By the way, clay does the same thing. So you, you want a certain amount of clay in your soil. You want humus in your soil, and both of those hold nutrients in your soil so they don't get washed away when the rain comes. Um, sand won't do that, for example. And it provides a home for soil microbes. Now, this is kind of a fun thing. Um, I think it's on the next slide. Yeah. How many of you w could guess how much life is in a teaspoon of soil? How many living organisms are in a teaspoon of healthy soil? 100,000. Uh, million. Billion. All right, we've got some high, high achievers here. <laughs> the truth is, there is over a billion life forms in a teaspoon of soil. That's a healthy soil. It's going to vary from soil to soil, but a healthy soil has over a billion life forms. Those are bacteria, fungi. If you think about it, as you're walking out on this, this soil out here, there is a huge life ecosystem that is happening underneath your feet. Um, in fact, and, you know, that number is so, so large that it, it's hard for us to comprehend. So to count the, how, so just to, just to give you a, a little bit more of an idea of how to comprehend that large of a number, um, if you are counting one of those life forms every single second, so one, two, three, and you were looking at a, under a microscope, it would take you 31 years to count just the microorganisms in a teaspoon of soil. That just gives you an idea of how much life is in your soil. And um, I, I'm just lingering on this a little bit because that life is important for the health of your garden and for the health of your soil. These life forms, the bacteria and the fungi, actually form symbiotic relationships with your plants. There's fungi that will protect plants from harmful nematodes that try and attack them. And the fungi will grow on the plant's roots and kill the nematodes as the nematodes are trying to come in and attack. So there are ways in which, and it's absolutely fascinating um, to, to study. I mean, it's a, it's a huge... For, it's a huge um, area of study that we know so little about, but the little that we do know about it, it just boggles our minds. Um, another thing is that those life, the life in the soil help make the nutrients available to plants so that plants can actually take the nutrients up. So there's a huge relationship between them. So it's important um, to think about the life in your soil. In fact, there are 5,000 to 20,000 pounds of bacteria, fungi, and worms, and other living organisms living in the top six inches of soil on an acre of land alone. Five to 20,000 pounds. The organisms play a critical role in making the soil a place where plants can live, grow, and thrive. 
And so we have those rock particles, we have the life in the soil, and then air and water. Um, while soil is very important for plant life, water and air are just as essential. We all know that our plants need water. <laughs> That's why you water your garden, right? But the roots of your plants also need air, and you might not think about that as much. Um, not just the leaves. Of course, your leaves need air. You're going to have photosynthesis going on and all of that. But the roots of your plant need air as well. The little empty pockets between soil particles are filled with water, air, or both. Large spaces allow water to drain easily with gravity through your soil. Small spaces allow for the capillary water to rise up through the ground from lower water tables to reach the plant roots like we were talking about earlier. Small spaces between the, plant, between the soil particles. So um, if you think about it, if you have large rocks, water's just going to fall through it. But the smaller it gets, the water kind of sits there, and then it, it can actually start moving back and forth and up and down through the particles of soil. The ideal is to have about half of the spaces in the soil filled with water and half filled with air. Then as more water is added to the soil, it can pull fresh air behind it into the spaces it passes through. Think of it like a straw. If you fill up a straw and um, hold it so that it's, it's full of water, and then you let it grow and the water goes down, it's going to pull air behind the water. Does that make sense? And so the same in your soil. As water goes through your soil, it will pull new air down into the soil roots. So let's talk about soil texture real quick. Um, Soil texture is also a key aspect of a good soil, and it's determined by what size the particles are that make up your soil. While individual particle size is important, characteristic of the soil, how these particles are grouped together creates your soil structure. So you have the sand. When we're talking about particles, we have the sand, the silt, and the clay. The way those are grouped together actually forms what we call your soil texture structure. Um, good garden soil contains a good mix of sand, silt, and clay. This is kind of the ideal. You want about 30 to 50 percent sand, 30 to 50 percent silt, 20 to 30 percent clay, and 5 to 10 percent organic matter. So there's a range in there. And um, you may, you, most likely you have either a soil that is higher on the clay or that's higher on the sand, and we'll share with you what you can do to improve a soil that is off of those recommendations. But first, these individual soil particles are bound together in what is called aggregates. An aggregate, the simplest way to think of it is when you take that soil and you crumble it, all of those little crumbles that are kind of stuck together are called aggregates of soil. Um, the, and here's another place that the, the life, all of those microbes and the life in the soil comes into play because the biology in the soil creates a glue that actually holds those aggregates together. It's really neat. Uh, fascinating. All right. So this is repeating some of what we just said about how a, a good soil structure provides enough drainage between particles? Yes. How would you determine the amount of the 
sand and the silt. Good question, and um, I think it's on the next slide. I'll share with you how you can how you can do that. Um, you want a soil that has the ability to have good drainage um, between the particles, at the same time allowing plenty of water, capillary water, to reach the plant's roots. Um, all right, so let's talk about determining the texture of your soil. We'll help you understand how well your soil can hold water and nutrients. Remember, a soil is made up of those three sized particles, and the texture is determined by a ratio of those particles. The easiest, the easiest way to determine the general texture of your soil is to take some soil and some moist soil and press it into a ball in your hands. All right? So if it's dry outside, just take some water, pour it on your soil, moisten it, and take it and put it into a ball in your hands. Do we have the soil with us? I think it's out by the shed. We brought a little bit of soil from our farm so we could just show you exactly what we're talking about. And here's a picture of me doing it. In fact, you can't really see it here, but I have a ball of soil in my hand. If you open your hand and your soil falls apart, you probably have a sandy soil. All right? Um, if your ball stays together, then try to stretch it out by squeezing it between your fingers, all right? So you're basically making a ribbon with it. If you can only stretch it an inch or so, then you, you have what we would call a loamy soil, which means it's pro probably fairly well balanced, but could have more silt or sand in it. Um, probably not a lot of extra clay. But if you can stretch it out a couple inches or a few inches, or you can just keep on stretching it out, um, then you're looking at a much higher clay content in your soil. So that's a very simple, practical thing that you can just go out into your garden. And it would be fun to do it with your kids. Take your kids out there and say, hey, kids, everybody grab a ball of soil. Now try stretching it out. Do you want to do it? <laughs> Is it moist enough? I don't know. It's been raining a lot at our place, so this, this soil is quite moist. So I, I went ahead and, uh, while you were gone, just told them the, the general what you want to do. Okay. I don't think it's going to stretch at all. Yeah. So it, it should be a little moister than we have it here, but like we just explained, you try and stretch it out in your fingers. Another thing that you can do is to get a much clearer, clearer idea is you can do a simple soil texture test and you put the soil in water and then put a water softener, a liquid water softener in with the soil, shake it up and let it sit and it will settle down into its component parts and you'll be able to see how much sand, silt and clay you have um, in your soil. You can, I think you can even actually use soap I believe as well, but what, what uh, officially you would use a water softener, a liquid water softener. You can buy it at Walmart, and I forget what brand it's called. Yeah. So your 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 sand will settle to the bottom first, and then and then your silt on top of that, and then your clay. If you have a lot of clay, it might take a while for the clay to settle because it's so small. You might need to leave it a day or so. Yeah. 
And the purpose of doing this is that it just gives you a better idea of how to work with your garden soil, um, how, how to improve it. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a second here. I know I'm just kind of holding that out like a little bait. Um, another thing that you can do that's kind of fun, this is a lot of fun to do with, with kids, is to count the life in your soil. Now, you can't obviously count the microorganisms. Like I said, you be there a long time, and you have to have microscopes and all that kind of stuff. But you can count the large, larger um, life forms in your soil. You're going to have um, earthworms, probably, maybe some, of the, maybe some millipedes, some of those little pill bugs, um, other kinds of things. So what you do is you cut out a square foot of soil and put it in a bucket, and then go inside and sift through the soil and just take out the life forms and count how much, the, how much you have. It gives you an idea of where your soil is. In a square foot of garden, you want approximately 10 uh, to 30 worms plus other little insects as well. Um, I, I did this one time, and it was actually it was pretty fun. So it's a fun thing that you can do with your kids, and it gives you an idea of how how well your soil's life ecosystem is. The more earthworms and life that you see, the better off your soil is. Um, yes, we have a question here. Do you, does it matter the season for the worms? Do you, do you spring or the okay. Yeah, so the question was, um, does it matter the season that you do this? Um, should it be in the spring or at another time? Um, you know, probably the spring is the, the ideal, the spring or summer, but when I did it, I did it in the fall, I think it was, and there was still a lot. I found a lot. I was surprised. We had, I had about 20-something worms, and um, this was out in our flower beds. I just did it in the flower beds. It was a fun, fun thing. Other little insects as well. So the question was, do you, how much soil do you want to take? About a square foot, a, a cubic foot, I should say, of soil. Um, and you want about, the ideal is to have about 10 to 30 earthworms. That's kind of the measurement that you're looking at. Yes? Then you sift it through, you sift through it, yeah. And you can just sift through it with your hands. That's how I did it. Um, you don't need to have like an official sifter or whatever. How far? How deep? A, a foot. So, so a cubic foot. No, that's fine. That's correct. Yeah, a foot deep and a foot across both ways. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. All right. So. The, the number one, and, and pay attention here real quick, the number one thing that you can do to improve your soil, no matter what soil you have, whether you have sandy soil like we have out here, or you have a clay soil that is just very compact, doesn't have a lot of air space in it, um, no matter which side of the spectrum you have your soil, the number one thing that you can do to begin improving it is to add organic matter to your soil, to add compost, humus, to your soil. Um, the, uh, and compost and humus, 
there, there are so many benefits to it. I wish we had more time to go into it. Um, but if you, if you want to get, if you want to go more in depth, then come and talk to us afterwards or go to, if you're listening, go to our website, borntogrow.net, and we have much more in-depth training. Um, but compost is like a buffer in your soil. No matter, no ma- just simply, like if you have a sandy soil, it's going to add, um, it's going to add texture to your soil that will help hold nutrients there and hold water there. Um, good humus holds, it's like 80 to 90% more water than just your regular soil. Um, so it holds a lot of water, which is a problem if you have a sandy soil. On the, on the flip side, if you have a clay soil, it helps break it up and add more of those air spaces so that water and, um, and air can get down into the soil. Um, and especially when you're talking about a sandy soil, adding that organic matter will help hold nutrients there, which is very difficult in a sandy soil because nutrients don't attach onto the sand. So the number one thing to do is what? Add compost or add organic matter to your soil. That can be anything from compost, um, composted vegetable scraps, um, composted uh, manure, uh, other organic matter sources, or it can even be like peat moss or uh, coconut core are, is organic matter as well. Now, peat moss, for instance, is a great way to add organic matter, for instance, in a sa- sandy soil. It adds a lot of organic matter, but it doesn't add a lot of nutrients. It's not a, a good nutrient source. But if you're talking about like a mushroom compost or um, a, a compost that is uh, broken down off of like manure or something like that, that is going to be adding more nutrients to your soil as well. So that's just a differentiation. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, what kind of worms should you use in your garden if you're going to add worms to it, I'm guessing, right? We haven't actually, we haven't actually gone in and added worms to our garden. Um, and, and I'll just be honest, I haven't, I haven't looked into purchasing and adding worms. I have heard of some people that have added a certain kind of worm that just like almost overpopulated really quickly. Um, do you ha- do you know, Dad? More. Well, what what I would say is that if you if you have a if you create a good soil, um, worms will multiply in it. So I we had an experience in in Arkansas before we moved to the farm. I I got a big round bale of old hay. You know, it was very old hay, and I I spread it on the area that we wanted to do a garden in. And um, several weeks or maybe a month later, I came back and I, I was wanting to put in some tea posts to stake tomatoes on. And um, the, the ground before I put the, the straw on it was, was, um, was very hard and, and rocky and 
It had grass growing on it, but it was very sparse. You know, you could tell it, it was not a rich soil. But when I, when I went to pound those tea posts in, um, I would hit the worms were just dancing up out of the ground. They were just coming up all over. They were, it was just full of worms. So uh, you can create an environment that worms will thrive in and, and they will multiply and grow. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'd be happy to do more research on what are the best worms. Um, if you get, get in touch with me later, I'd be happy to do that for you and get an answer for you. Now for, now for composting, if you're thinking about um, composting, with worms, like doing worm compost, um, red wigglers are a good composting worm. So what that is is, is you, cre- you make a bin and you put the worms in and then you let them do the compost. You're not actually adding the worms to the garden. Mm-hmm. So that's... I've heard of people adding worms to their garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, I misunderstood your question. I thought the red wigglers. And I can give you a link to a good source for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we have about 10 more minutes, and let's finish up this section. Being that adding compost is one of the best things that you can do no matter what your soil is, there are other things that you can do. And, for instance, if you have a clay soil, you might think that, well, I need to add sand. And you can add sand to a clay soil, but usually you would have to add so much sand that it makes it kind of unrealistic. Does that make sense? And so... It's, it's better to focus on adding organic matter first, and if you can add sand, then by all means, go ahead and, and add it if you can. So being that organic matter is the number one thing that you can do to begin improving your soil, and there are other things that you can do as well, but this is no matter who you are and where you are, what soil you have, how do you go about um, setting up a good compost pile so that you can start creating your own organic matter? Does that... Um, interest you? All right. So organic matter is mainly composed of two elements, carbon and nitrogen. First of all, I should ask you all, how many of you have a compost pile? Excellent. Excellent. Um, How many of you have experienced your compost pile um, becoming overridden with with worms and and becoming mushy and stinky? And okay, yeah, we Ants, you got, we, we have problems with ants as well. I'll get to that in just in, in a bit, but remind me if I forget, okay? Um, <clears throat> so it's, um, it's easy for a compost pile to get to a point where it is uh, kind of a stinky, mushy mess, all right? Um, and we're going to share with you how you can build your compost pile successfully where that never has to happen. So organic matter which is your kitchen scraps, what, the things you're putting on your compost pile, is composed of two elements, carbon and nitrogen. Um, the composting process requires a proper ratio of carbon, which is your browns. Um, carbon is your browns. So think of it like straw. Straw is organic matter, but it has dried and become brown, and it's largely composed of carbon. 
On the other hand, it's your old and dry ingredients. On the other hand, you have nitrogen, which are your greens. Those are your young, moist, fresh materials. So fresh grass clippings, fresh kitchen scraps from your kitchen table, um, anything that's fresh and moist is your nitrogen. A good compost pile consists of alternating layers of the two, like a multi-layer sandwich of browns, bread, and greens, jelly. All right? Yes. Um, yes, and I'll touch on that in just a second. A good ratio is about three parts brown to one to two parts green. All right? Three parts brown to one to two parts green. So if you put in, you know, three handfuls of straw, then you want to put in about one handful. I mean, you might not want to put your hand in the, in the, in the messy um, greens, sometimes your kitchen scraps, but you know, if you put a bucket of kitchen scraps in, you want to put about double that of something, something brown. Um, and let's see, got off there. Tossing a few shovelfuls of dirt onto your pile can help stimulate the microbes in the breaking down process um, as you build it up. So, in other words, the, the dirt is inoculating your pile with microbes. Yeah. 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 So, so the question is, does it matter um, what kind of dirt? Uh, is it darker? You know, if you, the richer the dirt, the better. Um, you'll have more microbes and life in it um, to help with starting that breakdown process. So here's a few tips for um, making your compost pile. The ideal size of a compost pile is about four to six square feet. Um, that's about four feet wide by four feet tall, all right, and square. You can do it in a longer windrow, but if you're doing a home garden, most people aren't going to have that much extra scraps. Um, the the point of not going larger is that you would need to make holes in the pile for air circulation because the breakdown process uses air as well. And if you get too large, the center becomes anaerobic. All right? One so in other words, make it four feet wide and four feet high. But if it starts getting more than four feet, then, then you want to start making it long. Yeah. You don't want to keep a square pile. Make it long. Yeah. We call it a windrow. Or you can start a new pile and have two piles. Um, one simple way that you can do this is you can build a structure to contain your compost pile. Um, and uh, if you have easy access to it, a simple way to create that structure is to use straw bales stacked too high on their sides and create a little structure that you put your compost pile in the middle. And then you'll want to cover this with a tarp. Um, <clears throat> And then what happens is once that pile breaks down and you use that compost, you can use the straw that is left over around as your browns for your next compost pile. All right. Now, coming back to your question of what is the ideal, um, straw is the perfect brown ingredient because of its structure. So if you, if you have access to hay or straw, it is the perfect ideal because um, straw you know, if you, take a, if you take a strand of straw, it has, it's kind of like a straw, right? I mean, it's, it's called straw. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Um, it, it has a hollow stem. And that hollow stem 
um, makes sure that there is air in that pile, keeps that pile aerated. So that's why it is an ideal. Yeah, I, I just want to clarify for some the, the difference between straw and hay. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they are not the same thing. Straw is made from the stems of, of grains, like the stems of wheat or oats or rye or rice. Yeah, any, any grain. And they, they have a, a, a structure, like Paul said. Hay is made from, from just any, any vegetation that's growing in a field or a meadow. Okay, so it's, it tends to be more grassy. And so it doesn't, it doesn't have those hollow stems. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the, the straw and hay are two different things. And, and the straw is better. But, but hay, is, hay is okay too. Now one, one issue with both straw and hay is that you will often end up with seeds in it. So it, it, they are very good sources of organic matter but you will often end up with weed seeds in, in hay and, and the grain seeds, whatever grain the straw came from, you'll, you'll end up with those seeds in your, in your straw. Yes? We have chickens and use straw for our chicken beds and stuff. I'm wondering, can chicken manure uh, hinder or help a compost pile? Yes, it's, it's very good for a compost pile. Um, you, you just need to keep in mind that, that chicken manure will be a, it's a green. It's a, it's an, it's a high source of nitrogen. And so, but, but, the, but the chicken manure combined with the straw together would, would be a good balance. Yeah, yeah, excellent question. All right, so that's a perfect brown ingredient. As far as perfect green ingredients, you know, your kitchen scraps, there, there isn't necessarily a perfect green ingredient. Um, fresh grass clippings is a nice one. Okay, fresh grass clippings is about as close as it gets. Um, the ideal moisture level of your pile should be like a squeezed out sponge. So you want to keep your pile moist. Um, if it dries out, it's not going to continue the breakdown process. So you might even need to get a hose and spray it down. All right? Yes? Thank you. Thank you. It does say it in the handout six. And on the slide, um, I had four to six. So six is the largest that you would ever want to go. Um, I'm sorry that it was a little uh, different with the handout. I would suggest four. Um, but you can go up to six. It gets a little bit larger. And if you're turning it by hand, then it gets a little bit more complicated to actually be able to do that physically. That's because I made the handout and Paul made the... <laughs> PowerPoint. Yeah. All right. So moving on here, if your pile stinks, is mushy, or attracts flies, then you will want to remake the pile while adding more brown ingredients. All right? The, the sign of that is that there's too much nitrogen. There's too much of that fresh green material, and you need to add some brown to, to, um, to balance it off. I see your hand. I'll get to you in just a second. Um, just one second. If your pile isn't doing anything, then it either needs more moisture added to it or it needs more green material. So if it's just sitting there and not doing anything, then add some more green or some more moisture. Yes? 
The question is, can we use pine needles for brown? Um, Dad, do you have experience with that? Uh, no, uh, but you, you can, but you need to keep in mind that, that they tend to be more acidic. And, and so you, you might want to do something to buffer that. I'm not sure exactly. They also may take longer to break down yeah. um, if you're using those. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so your that is an excellent question. Your pile should be heating up, especially in the center. So if you take your pile and you jab a shovel into it and kind of start start to mix it up, your pile should heat up to the point where there's steam coming out of it. It'll actually get so hot in the middle of it that it's it's too hot to touch. Yeah, yeah it can be so hot that if you put your hand in it, it it would burn you. So, so if your pile isn't heating up like that, then you'll want to add some more brown, some more greens. Um, another thing is that you can add some molasses to kind of help um, get those microbes going. Um, that's another another way that you can get it to jumpstart. Another another concept that is useful here. We're talking about heating it up. Whenever you you know if you have a, a fire and it's been burning for a while. Uh, the, the flames start to go down, but then you, you turn it and rearrange the wood, it, it flares back up again. That's exactly what happens when you turn your compost pile, okay? It gets fresh air and, and maybe some moisture in there if, you're, if you needed to water it, but it, it, it just helps to flare it up again. Yeah. And you can... There are specific recipes to make compost in 14 days, but it's, it's very intense, and, and it takes a lot of turning. You're, you're turning your pile every, every day or every other day um, in the recipe. Um, but you, you need a recipe like that, and I, I don't think I've got one <laughs> with me. I, but you, you, can, um, you, can, you can do it in 14 days. But um, to be honest, on, on our farm, we, we, we turn our piles maybe once or twice a year. And, and that's, a, that's a long-term process, and, and it'll turn into compost over a year or maybe between a year and two years. Your, your pile will turn into compost if it's not intensively managed. So those are two different ends of a spectrum, and you can do something in between if you want to. Yeah. We don't do that on purpose. It's just that it doesn't get, we don't get around to it, to, to turning the compost pile. Um, and just before I take your question, uh, the other thing is that the smaller your materials are chopped up, the faster they will decompose. So the 14-day compost um, is very finely chopped, like grass clippings and, and other things. So the smaller it's chopped up, the faster. Question? I would turn it once or twice a week, mm -hmm. if you can, if you have the ability to, to do that. One, one very simple thing you can do is you can just test it, you know, put your hand in it every day. And as long as it's 
as long as it's getting hotter from one day to the next, leave it. But, but when you feel that it's starting to cool down, then you can turn it. The other thing is, coming back to your aunt's question, um, is that if your compost is successfully breaking down, it's going to be so hot that it will be uninhabitable for the ants. All right? So if you have an ant problem and it's being infested, then it's a good idea that your, your compost isn't really actually breaking down and you need to do something. And actually, the ants don't like being turned regularly either. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, you have ants, do you start a new one? Or just keep working until it's turned that one until So the question is, if you have ants, I'm just repeating it because it's being recorded. Um, the question is, if you have ants, do you start a new pile or do you continue trying to work with that one? And I would continue trying to work with it. Um, you know, add... Make sure that it has that ratio of browns and greens. Maybe add some molasses to it to kind of help jumpstart the microbes, get them working better, faster. Um, add a, bit of, a, a little bit of soil, a couple shovelfuls of soil, and let it sit there and see, see if it starts breaking down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And heating up is what you're looking for. Yes. Yes, you can use brown leaves mm-hmm, as a brown source. Yeah, yeah. What about citrus? Seems like we have more citrus than anything. <laughs> yes. You're talking about rinds. Yeah, the, the, the yeah. rinds, yeah. Um, you, can, you can use the citrus in the compost pile, but it does take a long time to break down. And if you can, the smaller, the smaller it is, the smaller you can chop it up before you put it in, um, the faster it will break down. Do you have any? That would be considered a green. Mm-hmm. All your, your kitchen scraps are greens. Anything that's fresh is a green. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the dried out things are, are browns. Yeah. Um, you can add, say, uh, um, I actually had a, a recipe. I don't remember. But I would add like a couple cups of molasses to it. You can mix it in water. Yeah, you want to mix it in water and then... And then spread it on. So put like a cup of molasses in a gallon of water, and then and then pour it over your compost pile. Jackson. Good question. So if it's if you're somewhere cold, like up north in the winter, do you still turn it? And the answer is not really. It pretty much goes dormant in the winter. Most compost piles, and they're not going to really break down much during the winter. So you probably want to wait till spring and then do the do the compost during the spring season. It's, it gets frozen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the winter. We did our first compost pile, I guess, two falls ago, and my husband dug a hole, and we really didn't know what we were doing, but we did food scraps and dead leaves, and um, this past fall, um, it actually turned into what it was supposed to turn into. That's fantastic. We didn't do anything to it. We just put the stuff there. But, I mean, I don't know if that's how you should do it, but it was... I'm just grateful for that. That's fantastic. Yeah, she was just saying that they, they dug a hole and put leaves in the compost and just left it, didn't do anything, and it, and it broke down. And it does. That's the natural process. That, that, that is an alternative way of making a compost pile is to dig a hole. And if you want, you can, you can do that in your garden beds. You know, you can dig out a garden bed and, and then make compost in it. But I, I think I would, I would wait a year you know, as in her experience before trying to grow in it again. 
And if you are going to do it that way, I would suggest digging, in, digging it in your bed that you plan to plant. Otherwise, it's just going to be a lot of work to try and dig it back out to move it somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? I have two questions. Okay. Um, Yes. Um, from all of the, you know, different, different places are going to recommend different things. I've heard people recommend up to 30 carbon to one nitrogen. So, you know, there's a wide variance when it comes to um, what is the actual recommended. Um, and it, it, it depends on, on what kind of materials you're using. For example, if, if your green is, is kitchen scraps or grass clippings, and your, your brown is, is your old tomato vines. You know, your tomato vines, if they're not chopped up, they, they'll take a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, your, your volume size, you'll, you'll need a lot more tomato vines. You'll want to err on the, the 30 parts, <laughs> you know, with, with that example. But, so it depends on the kind of material you're using. Yeah, because some people may be doing it in volume. Some people may be doing it by weight. The other, the... the other thing to, to keep in mind is that if, you're, if your pile is, is beginning to get gooey and smelly, then that's a sign that you, your, your ratio of greens is too high. You need more brown. So you can just do it by feel. Mm -hmm. And just keep observing. You know, observation is one of the most important things you can do in your garden. Yeah. And... So I would suggest that a, a 3 to 1 or 3 to 2 um, is a good place to start and then see how it goes from there. Yeah. Uh, just a second. She had just one more question and then I'll get back to you. Are you talking about straw and hay, or are you talking about compost? Mm -hmm. Now, one, one, thing, one thing with straw, especially if it's like wheat straw, um, and this is connected with GMOs, but it's not directly that you're going to have a genetically modified product in the straw, but um, wheat farmers will use glyphosate to kill off weeds in their wheat field after the wheat has dried up and they're ready to harvest. And so then... And also, another purpose is to make the, the wheat field dry uniformly so that they can harvest the whole field. Mm -hmm. So this is something we've learned recently, is that it's a fairly standard practice to, to use Roundup, which is glyphosate, um, on, on the wheat field right before harvest. And uh, Roundup is what's used on genetically modified crops because a genetically modified crop is modified to not be killed by it. Um, so that's kind of a link with the GMO, but it, it adds that, that herbicide, is what it is, to the straw, which actually um, can stay in your soil for quite a while, and they've found, they've found glyphosate 
in um, taken up into lettuce plants that had the the glyphosate sprayed on the soil like three months prior um, to it. So that that is something to consider. And I would suggest if you're looking at at straw and wheat um, straw and hay sources to Find out as much as possible of where they're being sourced from, and if possible, get it from an organic farm. Or, um, y yes, it, it can uh, be hard to do. Yeah, I, I, I would. You. Yeah, I would say if your straw is is the preferable ingredient, but it's also the one that's more likely to have been um, sprayed, mm -hmm. and whereas hay. Most, unless the farmer is, is, is specifically growing hay as a cash crop, chances are, are significantly less that he has sprayed. The, the hay fields are, are generally just natural and just harvested without any input. So your, your safer um, pesticide you know, looking at the pesticide issue, you're safer with hay than with straw generally, unless you're getting organic straw. If you, if you know that your straw is organic, then that's good. Yeah. All right, friends, I hate to do this because I know that we have more questions and we really want to answer your questions as well. Um, the time is running away. It's, it's 1043 and we're supposed to start the next session at 1045. So I think that we should take just a few minute break just to stand up, to stretch, um, come back uh, to the next session in, say, let's say like five minutes and then and we're happy to answer anybody's questions. You can come up to us um, or, you know, come to our table sometime. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.